John 2 verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Uh, When people are are launching a company these days, they try and do something that's going to be a little bit creative or a bit dramatic. They want to draw attention to what it is that they're doing. They want to get people focusing on them and their business. If you're launching a business, you want to make a statement about who you are and what it is that you're on about, what it is that you do. Um, There will be radio and uh, television advertising campaigns, billboards, newspapers. Uh, The people who have been particularly good at this in the past few years have been the good people at Apple. Uh, Whenever they're launching one of their new products, their new iPhone or their iPads, uh, they always make sure that they create a lot of hype about what's happening. Uh, They get some big-name celebrities involved to to show off their products and to show that they are just as impressive as Bono. John uh, tells us about the launch of Jesus' ministry here in John chapter 2. It's the very opening of Jesus' ministry. In some ways, chapter 1 was just all about introducing Jesus, but not necessarily hearing from Jesus. But here in chapter 2, we're introduced to Jesus. Uh, John wants to show us who Jesus is and what it is that he has come to do. Now, how would you write your gospel of Jesus? If you were writing one, you've now got to the point where where Jesus is about to walk onto the stage. What would you want to put right at the beginning of the gospel? What would you want to show as the, the first thing that Jesus does in your account of the life of Jesus? I keep thinking I'd probably go with feeding the 5,000. I mean, it was a huge, dramatic thing that Jesus did in feeding 5,000 people. It was also a miracle that shows the great compassion that Jesus has. So I kind of think that would be a great way to launch his ministry. Or maybe calming the storm. Again, it's a dramatic miracle. It gives us a clear idea of who Jesus is, the power and the authority that Jesus has. I think I'd put one of those two right at the beginning. That'd be the first thing that I'd want to show about Jesus. But that's not what John puts at the beginning of his gospel. In fact, I've got to say, the choice of the two things that he shows us in this chapter, it's a little strange. Changing water into wine at the wedding at Cana and overturning the tables of the money changers in the temple in Jerusalem. I mean... 
It seems to me to be a bit of a strange choice of events. Uh, the miracle that we just heard read, did, did you notice that Jesus doesn't even get the credit for what's happened there? They're thanking the groom for providing this great quality wine. No one seems to recognise, apart from a small handful of people, that Jesus has actually done anything miraculous. And then when Jesus goes casting people out of the temple, well, that's highly unlikely to endear yourself to terribly many people. But they're the two things that John wants to show us. The two events that make a statement about who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. If you read through John's Gospel, you notice that it has a different feel to the other Gospels and there's a, there's a pretty good reason for that. One of the main reasons is that John gives us a whole lot of unique stories, stories that don't appear in any of the other Gospels and the story at the wedding at Cana is one of those uh, stories. Uh, there's a little graph, uh, it might seem a little strange, but here's a graph showing which Gospels share which material. So you'll notice Matthew, Mark and Luke, they all have a lot of material in common. Um, 85% of Mark's Gospel appears in the other Gospels. But did you notice John on the end? Almost everything in John belongs uniquely to John. And so therefore it does have a different feel to the other Gospels. You read Matthew or Mark or Luke and you feel like you've read these stories before, but you read John and it's very fresh, very different. And John wants to give us some stories here that are different, that give us a different perspective on the life of Jesus. John's very careful in the stories that he chooses. And the two incidents that he's got here in chapter 2 are exactly the ones that he has chosen to introduce the life and the ministry of Jesus. So let's have a look at the first one, at the wedding at Cana. We're told that uh, Jesus and his uh, disciples and Jesus' mother have all been invited to attend this wedding. But as I said, it's a pretty low-key miracle. Uh, Jesus is at the wedding and, and, and his mother says to him, they've run out of wine. She clearly thinks that Jesus will be able to do something. Uh, back, uh, it, it's probably still the tradition today that at a wedding, the, the groom will be the one who at the very least will be providing the alcohol. But back then, the groom was the one who provided everything. Uh, it was an opportunity to show that, that his new wife was coming into a, a, into a family that could provide, that could look after her. But to run out of wine at the wedding would have been incredibly embarrassing for the groom. So Jesus' mother steps in, clearly knowing that Jesus will be capable of doing something. Now, did you notice what it says there in verse 4? It's a bit of a cryptic verse. When Jesus' mother tells Jesus they've run out of wine, he says this, Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. What does he mean his time has not yet come? What time is he talking about? Well, I think there's probably a few answers to that question. Um, if you jump down to verse 11 at the end of that little story, it says this, This was the first of the miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. Thus he revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. I think part of what Jesus means when he says, my time has not yet come, is the time for him to reveal his glory. Because John seems to think these miraculous signs, they reveal the glory of Jesus. They show us who Jesus is. And Jesus seems to be saying, not yet. 
Not quite at the moment. The time hasn't come for me to completely reveal my glory. But I think there's more to it than that. As you read further on in John's Gospel, when Jesus talks about my time, he's talking about a very specific event that's coming up. He's talking about his death on the cross. And I think part of what Jesus means here when he says, my time has not yet come, is that he's saying it's not time for me to go to the cross yet. But there's one more thing, one more idea that I think is probably attached to that idea of my time has not yet come, but we'll save that one for a little bit later. Now, despite saying my time has not yet come, Jesus does remedy the situation, fixes their lack of wine problem, and boy, does he fix it. Uh, we're told that he fills up six, or he gets, gets the servants to fill up six stone jars. Uh, they were made of stone. They couldn't be made of, po- of pottery because pottery was thought to be able to become unclean in terms of Jewish ceremonial rituals. So stone jars were ones that could actually remain clean. So these stone jars were the ones that were used for, for Jewish people washing their hands whenever they were entering into a, into a home or particularly entering into uh, a wedding as they were here. Uh, they would push their sleeves up and they would dip their arms in right up to the elbow. It wasn't a hygiene thing, it was a ceremonial thing, uh, particularly for Jewish people. They may have come in contact with Gentiles and you wanted to ceremonially make yourself clean as you make your way into the wedding. Now we're told that these stone jars held somewhere 20 to 30 gallons each. Now that means there would have been around about 75 litres per stone jar. That means at the very least, Jesus has now made them 600 bottles of wine. That's what he's provided for them. Now, I don't know how many guests there would have been at the wedding, and I'm not sure how much each of the guests would have been drinking, but that is an enormous amount of wine that Jesus has made for them. The servants take some of the wine to the master of ceremonies, and look what it says there in verse 9. The master at the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best until now. I mean, he's rescued the groom in this situation, hasn't he? At the very least, the groom is now starting to look pretty good that he's brought out all of this choice wine. But again, it's strange, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't get the credit for the miracle. The only people who know are the servants, presumably his mother, and possibly the disciples. But everyone else thinks it's the groom that's provided this top quality wine for them. Maybe this is all a part of not wanting to reveal too much of his glory just yet. But at the same time, Jesus performed this miracle in order to reveal his glory. And jump down to verse 11 again. This, the first of the miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. Thus, he revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. The disciples believed Jesus. They recognised who he was. They recognised that here is a man that you can trust. Here is a man that you need to listen to, that you need to follow. So they put their trust in him. But then there's the second incident that John tells us about. Jesus clearing the temple. 
making a whip out of a cord, tipping tables over, scattering the animals, telling people to get out of the temple court. Some people feel a little bit uncomfortable with this incident. They don't feel that it fits the gentle Jesus, meek and mild idea that we're often told about in Sunday school. But I want you to notice something. In this story, as you read through it, the religious leaders are not upset by what Jesus has done. They don't question whether or not he's done the right thing in overturning the money changers' tables or or getting the animals out of the temple court. In fact, I think they know that Jesus has done the right thing in clearing the temple. Their question to him is not whether or not he should have done that. Their question to him is, by what authority have you done this? See there in verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Just as it was with Mary, they're calling on Jesus for a miraculous sign. And again, Jesus makes another cryptic statement there in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy the temple and I will raise it again in three days. You want a sign, Jesus says, then knock the temple down and I'll build it up again in three days. There's no doubt what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about his death on the cross. He's talking about his death and resurrection. In fact, John gives us a little bit of an editorial comment there in verse number 21. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said. They believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. But the religious leaders don't quite get what Jesus is talking about here. They go on to ask him the logical question there in verse number 20. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days. Is that right? How are you going to knock it down and build it up again in three days, Jesus? We, the readers, know what Jesus is talking about. But the religious leaders are left, well, really with a little bit of egg on their face, I suppose. But you need to feel the weight of what Jesus is saying here. You need to understand how important the temple was in the life of national Israel. We saw this a little bit when we were looking through the book of Hebrews earlier on in the year. The temple for the people of Israel was the place that God symbolically dwelt. It was the symbol of God's presence with his people. Now, they knew that he didn't literally live in the temple. They know that God's not going to be confined by a building. But it was the symbol of God's presence with his people. But now... Jesus has come. Jesus, who we saw in chapter 1, who is God. God present with his people. You don't need a symbol of God's presence with his people when you have God present with his people. You don't need the symbol that God is here when God is genuinely standing right there in front of you. The temple was also the place where sin was dealt with. The temple was the place where sacrifices were made. It's the place where the high priest made his atonement for the sins of the people. Now, all of that stands at the very heart of what Jesus is saying here. You don't need the temple anymore. You don't need it because I'm here. 
You don't need it for making sacrifices because I'm making the one and for all sacrifice. Jesus has come to pay the penalty for our sins once and for all. I mean, what Jesus is saying and what he does say in the other Gospels is you might as well just knock the temple down. It's no longer needed. It no longer serves a purpose. You might as well turn it into a Bunnings for all I care. Now, in a sense, the disciples notice something that's a little bit lost on us. You see it there in verse number 17. See, when they see what Jesus did, when they hear what Jesus said, they remembered what it said in the Psalms. This comes from Psalm 69. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is one of those Psalms in the Old Testament that was talking about the Messiah coming, God's Saviour coming into the world, what he'd be like and what he would do. And the disciples recognised that that's Jesus. That's what he's come to do. Now, I think there's a very good reason on John's part to put both of these episodes together right at the beginning of his gospel. John's chosen to tell us these stories to make a pretty clear statement about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. These are actions, this changing the water into wine and clearing the temple. They speak volumes about Jesus being the Messiah. Let's go back to the wedding at Cana for a minute. Jesus said, my time has not yet come. I said there were three things. It was about revealing his glory and about the cross. But I think there's more to it than that. If there's one picture of heaven that is consistently spelled out in the Bible, it's the idea of a banquet and particularly of a wedding banquet. In fact, the idea of heaven being that kind of a wedding banquet gets used right throughout the whole Bible. Now, this is what Isaiah says about that banquet. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine. The best of meats, the finest of wines. Joel says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the ploughman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. A banquet with the very best of wines. That's, That's this image of heaven. That's this image of the new kingdom being established. The Messiah is going to usher in this new age where there'll be the best of everything. The Messiah is going to be the one who hosts that banquet. And here is Jesus, the Messiah, at the wedding banquet in Cana, saying, not just yet. I think in part what he has in mind is the time for my banquet has not yet come. It will come, but not just yet. That banquet will happen, but first, Jesus has to endure the cross. Before his banquet can take place, there'll be a judgment that takes place in this world. That time will come, but not just yet. But another larger part of the messianic hope that people had back in the day of Jesus, well, it really hinged around the temple. 
They were longing for the day when God's glory would return to the temple. Back in the pages of the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, we read about God's glory departing from the temple. That God, in a sense, had left his people. And they're waiting for the day when God's glory will come back to the temple. But isn't that what Jesus says here? Knock it down and build it up in, and I'll raise it up in three days. Because now, God's glory is revealed in person. In Jesus. Jesus is God present with his people. And more than that, the function of the temple, the purpose that it served with sacrifices and, 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 and meeting God there, well, it's now been fulfilled. This is one of those passages that's often been fraught with a little bit of misunderstanding. People think G- Jesus clearing the temple is saying that we should have reverence for religious buildings. Well, nothing could actually be further from the truth. That's, that's definitely not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus wasn't concerned about the building. And as I said, in fact, in the other Gospels, he says, knock it down. It's of no use anymore. Turn it into a Bunnings for all I care. When Jesus clears the temple, he's not worried about the building. He's worried about the lack of respect that people have for his heavenly father. He's worried that they can go through the religious motions and don't care at all about their relationship with God. He's worried that they will keep repeating these rituals but not give a single thought to their relationship. What Jesus does here in the temple, again, stands at the very heart of what it is that we believe as Christians. God does not dwell in buildings made by man. We don't approach God through buildings. We don't meet God here. We meet God in his son, Jesus. We approach God through his son, Jesus. It's quite an opening to the ministry of Jesus, isn't it? Changing the water into wine, giving that little vision of the banquet that one day Jesus will be throwing, and clearing the money changes out of the temple, showing that what God is concerned about is hearts that are turned towards him, not buildings. Here is the Messiah, the one who reveals God, the one who makes the sacrifice for sin. Here is the Messiah who has come to prepare that heavenly banquet for us. And he reminds us that until that banquet happens, that we need to work at living faithful lives in our relationship with our heavenly father. 